0: hello everyone and welcome to scream scene the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst i'm ben and i'm sarah thank you for listening to us today how you doing today sarah good it's
1: Right into October.
0: Yes. Yes, it is.
1: We just went grocery shopping today, and they have the little pumpkins out, and they have the spooky gloves with, like, monster hands printed on them. It's great. It's, it's the best time of the year.
0: They have eyeball gum.
1: Brand name, spooky eyeball gum. Mm-hmm. Oh, and as part of the best time of the year... We're having some special content down at Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. This bonus content, like original spooky music by yours truly, is going to be available for everyone at all support levels, so if you want to check that out, head on over to Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. I'm super
0: excited for what's in store. How are you? I am a little tired, and I wish I had gotten more sleep. But say la vie. That's how the cookie
1: crumbles sometimes. Yep. I thought you were going to say I'm so tired of these 1940s movies that say they're horror but aren't.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's 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 get that cat out of the bag right up front. I feel like so we've been having a problem with the year 1940 in particular because we haven't even gotten out of 1940 yet.
1: We're like halfway through the year. Um, we're like
0: three quarters of the way through the year. Yeah. More like that. More like that. Um, and I, I just wanted to say like, I, cause like we've had more movies from 1940 show up on like the non-applicable list than like any other year, I swear, where like we've watched movies that have advertised themselves as horror and then we go and we watch them and it's like, oh, it's a romantic comedy. Like, I don't know. It hasn't been that bad, but it feels (laughs) like it. And I think part of the reason for this, Sarah, is that we're post-Son of Frankenstein, post, like, the return of horror in 1939, but we're still post-Code, and I think nobody's quite sure what horror is right now.
1: Which is interesting, because we called Son of Frankenstein a renaissance of the horror genre, both in the sense of, like, spooky scaryness. Mm-hmm. But also in the sense that, like, it was pushing the code a bit itself. Like, we would cut away right before the wagon wheel landed on someone's neck, but
0: you knew that person's getting run over. And that might even be the explanation for other people's reticence, right? Where it's like, you don't want to go that far. Yeah. You know, you see someone else go too far, and you're like, hmm. But did it go too far? Because audiences loved it. Sure,
1: sure. Enough to make it a renaissance of horror.
0: Yeah, I mean, so we're in this weird place where there's this clearly a demand for a genre that everyone's a little bit afraid of pushing too far, because if you push it too far, it'll have to go away again. Yeah, that's fair. So I think we're, we're in this awkward zone where we're figuring out what 1940s horror is. So the movie we're watching this week is The Door with Seven Locks.
1: Oh, um, you told me it was Chamber of Horrors. It's
0: both. (laughs) It's a UK title. It's a a British film. And the UK title is The Door with Seven Locks. The US title that is a bit more common to find on this side of the pond is Chamber of Horrors. Mm -hmm. And this is another one of these movies where it's certainly advertised as horror, And then when I did some checking up, I discovered a lot of reviews and websites and blogs saying, actually, this isn't horror. This is like a murder mystery movie sort of gussied up with some horror production value to make it seem like horror. Mm. And so I was I was nearly going to not do this movie because I was just getting so sick of these fake out horror movies. Yeah. And then we sort of got some encouragement from our online community to do this movie anyways. And, I mean, we did do Dark Eyes of London, which was like Door with Seven Locks and Edgar Wallace novel adaptation. And, in fact, Door with Seven Locks is made by the same production company. It's literally like their follow-up to Dark Eyes of London. Hmm. So we might as well do this to sort of, I guess, complete the set. Um, <laughs> and I guess we'll make our own judgment call. As to whether it is rankable, the good, good folks over at the Rank and Vile podcast, our friendly rivals, uh, insisted that we do this and rank it. But like, they rank everything over on that show. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure like Rocky Horror Picture Show is on that list somewhere. We're a bit more strict about like our genre definitions on this show.
1: And I think at the very least, this film will give us a way to discuss whether we continue with certain 1940s movies or not. Because before this episode, a lot of these discussions between Ben and I have been off mic. So it it would come out of nowhere for the regular listener.
0: I think the other significant thing that makes this movie worth talking about, even if it ends up not being rankable is that it's the follow-up to Dark Eyes of London, which was definitely horror, even though the novel was not.
1: Well, I, I did have to convince you that it was horror. Sure. And the way I did that was saying that it's like in the horror tree, but it's a branch leading off on its own.
0: Sure, and we're going to see if this movie continues that branch out away from the genre. Exactly. Um, but it certainly was more horrific than the novel it was based on. Yes, And now we're getting this follow-up, but in the intervening time, uh, something has changed over in Great Britain that might affect audience reaction to horror. Maybe you can enlighten us, Sarah.
1: For sure. So as we kind of talked about in Dark Eyes of London, when did that movie come out?
0: Gosh, like, I think it was made before... World War II started, and then it came out, like, right after. Like, it came out in October of 39, but they would have shot it before.
1: Okay. Um, Yeah, because Britain declared war on Germany in September 1939, after Germany invaded Poland. Mm -hmm. After declaring war, Britain went forward with two kind of strategies. Um, They beefed up their navy, and they sent the British Expeditionary Force to France, Um, The reason they sent it to France is because little Belgium is right between Germany and France Mm -hmm. and won't offer much of a buffer in the grand scheme of things. Um, So in France, eventually there will be around 200,000 men, and the Royal Air Force will have a presence as well. As part of beefing up the Navy, there was a bit of a Norwegian campaign in April 1940. Norway was neutral but Germany decided to strike in to get its resources, and the UK went in to kind of defend Norway and start to try to take back um, that area and the sea around Norway, and eventually failed. They evacuated in May. Um, They did establish a Royal Navy base in Iceland, but it was considered a failure. They got pushed out. Now between the declaration of the war and May 1940, on the France side of things, it's commonly called the Phoney War because there was hardly any combat outside of skirmishes here and there. And that all changed on May 10th when Germany pushed in um, with kind of a two pronged ap- approach, really just focused on pushing forces back to the coast and also kind of cutting them off from the coast so they get surrounded inland. Despite reinforcements being sent in, ultimately the Allied forces had to withdraw to Dunkirk as the last available port out of France. Side note, you should see Dunkirk from Christopher Nolan. It's real good.
0: There was a movie.
1: There was a movie about this thing. It's May 10th that Germany came into France, and it's May 26th when, like, everyone's getting pushed out. So it happened incredibly quick. Um, France surrendered after six weeks of combat.
0: That's why they call it Blitzkrieg Lightning War.
1: Yeah. It actually resulted in the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, resigning and being replaced by Winston Churchill. Now, the fall of France meant there were lots of ports for the German Navy and submarines, resulting in a stronghold on continental Europe.
0: Mm -hmm. The Nazis had basically all of Europe at this point.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, So while it gave them kind of a stronghold of where to launch their naval forces, it also gave Germany a strategic hold on airspace from which to attack Britain. What's kind of significant about what was called Operation Sea Lion, Germany attacking Britain, was that it was entirely fought in the air, which is... um, Significant, because that had never been done before. In part of my research, people were, like, a a historian was talking about how, um, in the 30s, people thought about, like, a war fought in the air with aircraft as being as far-fetched and terrifying as people in the Cold War thought of nuclear war. Mm -hmm. Operation Sea Lion was part of a fairly long-term air siege I guess you could call it, uh, on Britain, going from July of 1940 to late October of 1940. This campaign started with nuisance raids from late June to mid-July, increased pressure on ports and shipping and coastal airfields from mid-July to mid-August, what's known as the Eagle Attack, which was to destroy the Royal Air Force in South England specifically with heavy bombing, That took place from mid-August to early September. And then what's kind of the big event out of this whole air campaign is the Blitz from September 7th to October 2nd. Mm -hmm. After that, so for the rest of October, it was larger scale night bombings and flights during the daylight to try to lure the Royal Air Force into dogfights. Yeah. The Blitz is kind of the big event here where it was near constant bombings on major city centers london specifically um and it resulted in around 40 to 43,000 people dying um and 46 to nearly 139,000 people being injured mm-hmm. what i think is interesting because like i i knew some of this i knew about the blitz and all of this stuff um just from going to school i guess
0: sure <laughs> um Living in the world.
1: Living in the world. And it always seemed to be like, holy shit, like you just bombed out for like weeks on end and like the threat of it is on for so long. It just seemed terrifying Mm -hmm. to me. But British citizens actually started preparing for bombings since war was declared back in September 1939. Yeah. Actually when Chamberlain declared war... Um, That day, they had air sirens going as like, hey, we might be attacked, heads up. But even before that, um, there was a lot of concern over the threat of attack and a lot of concern over the psychological trauma of the average citizens. Um, Historians have traced this uh, concern in, in government policies back to 1938.
0: You know, this is the keep calm and carry on thing where the government did all these efforts to like psychologically prepare citizens to just like be cool with it basically
1: yeah to keep calm and carry on they had actually planned evacuation of up to four million people including 1.4 million from london um and they had a trial blackout in august 1939 which i think is interesting because that's before germany even invaded poland
0: yeah well, they, they kind of all knew this was coming for a while.
1: Yeah. And despite this looming threat and the military failures in Norway and France, general morale for citizens was very high. Hmm. Historians are actually, like, amazed at how little psychological trauma there was. Of course, there was some,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but there had been, like, centers for psych trauma opened around London and around the country, and some of them had to close because of, like, no one coming. Hmm. And I think a big part of this is that there was a ton of civilian mobilization into different organizations. When there's a bombing, you black out the city so they can't see what they're hitting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then young boys would, like, volunteer to help guide fire trucks to where they need to get to get to a fire, for example. Um... And I just, I think that ability to do something about it is a big factor in why there's not, why they didn't see as much, um, psychological trauma. As opposed to, like, at least for me, again, just living in the world, knowing what I know about the Cold War, Mm -hmm. um, that seems, like, incredibly tense, but you can't do anything, so you don't have an outlet. Sure. At least with the Blitz, um you can, there's, there's actually a thing happening and you just endure the bombs raining down on you and then you have something to do to clean up or join the forces or whatever.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's quite fascinating because you have the retreat from Dunkirk, which mm-hmm. was this huge disaster and they were really worried about, you know, how the British people were going to regard the retreating soldiers Um, whether they would regard them as, like, cowards and stuff, and how dangerous that would be for morale. And then, like, they sat there thinking that, like, the next obvious thing was going to be that, like, Germany would invade. And that never happened. And part of that was at first because, you know, Hitler's goal was to try and unite all the Germanic-speaking peoples under one roof, as it were, so he didn't want... To invade England, he wanted to sort of harass England until England gave up and just surrendered. Because he didn't yeah. want to, like, damage England too much. And... It's also hard to get there. Sure, but, like, you know, you could do it.
1: Totally, but, like, when you're waging war, like, because Operation Barbarossa is about to get started. Yeah. Like, you're, you don't want to spread yourself too thin. So it makes sense to, like, we'll just pester them rather than full-out camp outside their door.
0: Yeah. And so you end up with the Blitz, and that leads into, like, the Battle of Britain, where you have, like, the RAF, like, defending the country on, like, a daily basis. So you have these heroes that, like, the country can kind of rally behind. And then, as you said, you have everyone working together, like, every day to get through the bombings, and, you know, you have things like, you, you see pictures of, like, the king and queen, like, walking through wreckage and, like, helping out people with, like, cleaning up. And, like, that was huge to see, like, royalty kind of getting down and dirty. And, like, Princess Elizabeth was, like, helping out with all kinds of, like, um, war relief efforts and things like that.
1: Yeah, she drove ambulances. Yeah.
0: And so I think it created this really strong sense of, like, national unity because they were, like you said, under siege as opposed to, like, defeated, right? So I think it's very interesting to think of a world where, with all of that happening, you're still going to the movies?
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, the reason why I brought up the fact that they've been preparing for this for so long is this was already kind of the mindset... When Dark Eyes of London came out, but now it's actually, like, actively happening. Right.
0: So in our Dark Eyes of London episode, we kind of talked a bit about um, the book that that's based on and the author of that book, and this movie, Door with Seven Locks, is also based on an Edgar Wallace novel, so it's probably good to just sort of touch briefly on Edgar Wallace again and talk about the book.
1: For sure. We keep talking about Dark Eyes of London. If you do want to go listen to it, it's episode 70. Um, but to briefly recap, Edgar Wallace was born in 1875 on April Fool's. I just love that, that fun fact
0: about him. Sure.
1: And he was born Richard Horatio Edgar Freeman. At 19, he enlisted in the British Army as Edgar Wallace after the Ben-Hur author, Lee Wallace. Hmm. He would transfer twice into different areas of the army and end up in the press corps and be posted in South Africa, during which time he would meet Rudyard Kipling and start writing poetry and more. By 1899, he bought his way out of military service and began writing full-time, remaining in Africa as a war correspondent during the Boer War. He was in a lot of debt, as can happen when you're living abroad and Doing writing full time, so Wallace is just pumping out work and selling it for soup's cheap. Um, in this period of like 19 early 1900s to 1932 is kind of his his most prolific period. Hmm. Wallace would eventually publish 18 stage plays, 957 short stories, over 170 novels. Jesus. <laughs> Um, screenplays and historical nonfiction. Many novels and short stories are crime thrillers, which are fairly easy to pump out. One such thriller novel was Dark Eyes of London, published in 1924, and another one was The Door with Seven Locks in
0: 1926.
1: Okay. So what it's about is Dick Martin is living is leaving Scotland Yard. Um, Kind of a fun fact, Dick Martin is Canadian. Okay. And he's on his last case before he he leaves.
0: Two days left before retirement.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And he's caught up with this thief um, who's known as being like one of the best lock pickers in London. And he tells him of um, the job he was hired for, but he doesn't really want to talk about it um, because it was very odd. Um, Being asked to pick locks, and he he kind of implies that it was very gruesome. But the thief is murdered before sharing full details. Eventually this leads Martin to a stolen book, which leads him to a library, um, which leads him to a missing person, etc. etc. Okay. The basic premise is that there is a search for seven individual keys that all open up a mysterious door in a family's tomb. Um, you need all seven of these to open the door. And of the siblings met, I think the one to really mention is, uh, he's a mad doctor character, possibly doing unethical experiments, and apparently there's hints of creatures resulting from these experiments doing the murdering. Huh. Okay. So, it's definitely a crime mystery thriller, but a lot of the reviews of the book talk about how it mixes in gothic horror elements and also science fiction elements because of this mad scientist. Gotcha. So, it definitely fits the current trends of the horror genre right now, but given that we're following a detective who's chasing down the bad guy, um... I would still consider this a crime thriller. Mm -hmm. So from what you know of the film,
0: how accurate do you think this is going to be? Uh, I don't know. Um, The Dark Eyes of London, uh, a.k.a. The Human Monster. uh, That's
1: true. That was its U.S. title.
0: Its release in 1939 had taken advantage of the lift on the ban of the horror genre by British censors. So they sort of took this Edgar Wallace novel so it had some homegrown British bona fides and then they bumped up the violence and the gore so that it pushed it into the horror category. Mm-hmm. The resulting film was a hit, but it was also a hit that severely pushed the censor's buttons. <laughs> and we talked about that in that episode, that Dark Eyes of London was very grisly in a way that we weren't expecting. yeah. So for the follow-up film, producer John Argyle decided to stick to the Edgar Wallace adaptation template, but recognized that truly horrific content wasn't necessary to ride the horror trend bandwagon. Instead, a strongly suggestive advertising campaign and the right kind of atmosphere in the look of the movie in terms of its cinematography or its production design was really all that was needed to transform a murder mystery into a horror movie in Britain in 1940.
1: He's not wrong.
0: (laughs) The general feeling among British censors at the time uh, in regards to horror movies was that the country had plenty of real horrors to deal with, Without any sort of additional pretend ones.
1: Which is a fair point. mm mm-hmm. um, But I mean, the tension that all of that gives you, in a film it allows a bit of a release, even though the world around you is terrible.
0: The thing with the British censors was they basically weren't going to let you put out a movie that was going to get the H rating. They were giving H ratings to imported U.S. films, But they were really trying to insist to British producers not to push that far. So, in fact, uh, Door of Seven Locks just has an A rating for adult audiences. Oh. Um, It does not have the H rating for horrific. Um, Because, in fact, Dark Eyes of London is the last H rated movie, I think, until after the war. Okay. Which, I mean, we've talked about this before that the H rating is a rating... It was invented for horror movies, but it's not like a genre stamp, you know? Yeah, yeah. To direct The Door of Seven Locks, Argyle hired veteran director Norman Lee, a British filmmaker with a career going back to 1929. This would be his 34th directing credit. Wow. Together with Lee and a writer named Gilbert Gunn, Argyle adapted the Wallace novel into a screenplay. Top build in the cast, playing the mad scientist character, was Leslie Banks, who is best known to audiences as the villainous Count Zaroff in the 1932 film of The Most Dangerous Game.
1: Oh, that's the film that they made during King Kong, right?
0: Yes, with the, you know, it's um, the wealthy, uh, eccentric hunter who hunts people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Count Zaroff. Yeah. So, yeah, Leslie Banks was the guy hunting the people. Awesome. Born in 1890, uh, Leslie Banks' acting career stretched back to 1911 on the stage, interrupted with service in the British Army during World War I. During the war, he received injuries to his face, which left one side partially scarred and paralyzed. Returning to theater after the war, he utilized his injuries by favoring his good side when performing in comedies or romances and using the paralyzed side when performing in dramas or tragedies.
1: Makes sense.
0: He divided his career between film and theater and between the U.S. and the U.K. His Most Dangerous Game appearance was really his big break in film, as it were, Um, but other notable roles for him would be appearing in Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, in 1934, and Jamaica Inn, in 1939. He also played the role of the chorus in Laurence Olivier's wartime version of Henry V, in 1944. The film's top-billed actress, Lily Palmer, was born Lily Peiser in Prussia in 1914, the daughter of a German-Jewish doctor and an Austrian-Jewish actress. Lily and her mother and sisters fled to Paris in 1934, while their father died in Berlin. In France, Lily appeared in the Moulin Rouge, and then in cabarets in London, where she was found by talent scouts. She changed her last name to Palmer and began her British film career. This would be her 12th film in British theatres. In 1943, she would marry actor Rex Harrison and moved with him to Hollywood in 1945, continuing her acting career there. And then, after her divorce, she returned to Germany in
1: 1954. Hmm. My family's from Prussia. Oh. Mom's side.
0: So, The Door with Seven Locks would be released through Pathé Pictures in the UK. On October 12th, 1940, and it was sold to Monogram Pictures in the United States, which changed the title to Chamber of Horrors, uh, which is the version we will be seeing.
1: Were there any other changes? Like, was anything cut or anything?
0: Not as far as I know. Okay. This uh, is also the version that's available in the public domain on the Internet Archive. hmm <laughs> Uh, though Kino released a restored Blu-ray in 2016.
1: Of Chamber or Door?
0: Uh, I think they used the Door title, but honestly, like aside from the title change, it's the same movie.
1: Okay, just curious. So while it's not on our YouTube playlist, you guys can check out the internet archive, watch along with us. In the meantime, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then when we come back, we will discuss... The Door with Seven Locks slash Chamber of Horrors, directed by Norman Lee from 1940.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: back everybody we just finished watching the door with seven locks slash the chamber of horrors directed by norman lee they sure do say the door with seven locks frequently in this movie
0: yes yes they do yeah um definitely the retitling is trying to position the movie in a different marketing light because there is like a chamber of horrors in here but like it's not as important to the plot as the door with seven locks, which is, like, the main thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we we definitely should have sort of um, gone with our instincts on this one. I should have gone with my instincts on this one. uh, Because this is, yeah, this is not a horror movie at all. I mean, we sort of alluded to that at the start, that it was sort of just being marketed as a horror movie more than it was actually produced by one. But even getting into watching it, like, you know, I thought that stylistically it might be kind of horror-esque just to get us in that right sort of atmosphere and even then not really like the tomb is a little spooky and it's got some cobwebs and stuff but really this is a mystery thriller Mm hundred percent
1: it's a very good mystery thriller.
0: yes yes absolutely good movie good movie fun time we had a good time watching it it's just not horror at all Going back to Dark Eyes of London, you know, we talked about, I was kind of on the fence about whether that movie was horror or not. Um, I was of the opinion that it was more of a police procedural. And, you, you know, you talked me into saying it counts as horror because it still had, like, a significant amount of, like, grisliness and murder and spooks and scares. And this movie doesn't really have any of that. It's all very toned down compared to something like Dark Eyes of London.
1: Yeah, this has a lot of... Hmm. How do I put this? I would consider this horror if it had come out in, like, the late 20s, in the way that those films tried to handle spookiness, Mm. with, like, mysterious gloved hands and a big spooky manner and a mystery at the core of everything. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's it's very similar to an old Dark House movie, very much so. I think the thing... The key thing that I think even if this was a 1920s movie would take it out of horror completely is the thing that it has in common with Dark Eyes of London, which is that the core of this movie is a Scotland Yard police procedural. Definitely, Like, I I would even be able to, I would be more willing to regard this as horror if June was on her own versus all these threats, but Mm -hmm. she's got, like, a, a competent, heroic police force that believes her that's behind her, like, every step of the line. So this is this is a police procedural mystery. You know, not to mention
1: her Aunt Glenda.
0: Yeah, but Aunt Glenda's, like, comic relief. If it, was, if it was just June and Glenda, they would be threatened, is what I'm saying. Sure, like, okay. She, you know what I mean? Like, Glenda's not here, you know, solving the mysteries and kicking down the doors with a gun in her hand, you know? What um, I do
1: like is that June could totally be doing that.
0: Yeah, this movie does continue our trend of British movies having, like, better women characters in them, like in terms of them having, you know, agency.
1: Yeah, I think a great example is like at one point there's a burglar and Dick Martin rushes in to, you know, beat him up and they're having a tussle, June wants to go in and fight too, but her her aunt slash, they seem more like roommates, um, is like holding her back because she's
0: scared. Yeah, yeah, June at one point says...
1: Let me go. Let me help.
0: Oh, I was thinking of the line where she says, um, you know, that basically when she was younger, she could have chosen between, like... She
1: flipped a coin and... Between
0: housework and adventure.
1: And it landed on adventure. Yeah. Making her a very pretty Two-Face.
0: Yeah. So, um, in terms of the story, it's very familiar to anyone who's watched along with the show, um, in terms of the old dark house genre. Mm. Um, we start with Lord Selford, he's a crusty old British dude, and he's dying of being old. And uh, he is giving his whole estate to his young 10-year-old son, and because he's young, basically the estate is being put in trust with a few people. Um, so there's Dr. Minetta, who's like the family doctor and obsessed with torture chambers, and super weird and creepy and played by the guy from The Most Dangerous Game. Uh, and basically, like, he's got a goatee and a white streak through his hair and, like, wears a cape and goes around, like, cackling. Like, he's the villain. <laughs> um,
1: and he's also foreign.
0: Yes. Of a Vague.
1: He says his ancestors are Spaniards, hence the tie to, like, torture devices yeah. in the Spanish Inquisition. He
0: seems to think that the Inquisitors are, like,
1: heroes? Yeah. Um, but his accent, even when he's speaking Spanish, is like an Eastern European.
0: Yeah, and he says something about having to like that he came to England because he basically had to like flee his country in a revolution.
1: No, he went to Canada briefly. Right. But he
0: ended up in England is what I mean. Okay. Um and that because like because of this revolution against the nobles, which like the timing on that would make sense for him to be Russian. Yeah. Anyways, it doesn't matter. He's foreign, so he's (laughs) bad. Um, But there's also Havelock, who's the family lawyer. Um, You know, there's the family butler. There's a bunch of...
1: Family chauffeur. Yeah,
0: there's a (laughs) a bunch of folks. The point is that Lord Selford, when he dies, is buried in the Selford tomb with the Selford jewels because the jewels are supposed to be given to his young son's wife on their wedding day. And the tomb is sealed... By a door with seven locks.
1: That's the name of the movie.
0: So all seven keys are held by Havelock, the lawyer. Fast forward ten ten years. years. So if young Lord Selford can't get the money, like if he dies before he reaches age of maturity or something, it's supposed to go to like a distant cousin in Canada. Said distant cousin in Canada is June Lansdowne, who was raised by French Canadians in Quebec, (laughs) um, which I suspect is because she's being played by Lily Palmer, who's German, and they thought that they needed some, like, rationale for her accent because it just ever so often does not sound, you know.
1: Yeah, the, like, Canadian backstory that Dick Martin has in the novel is basically given to June, as well as Glenda, who's from Ontario.
0: Right. So, June and Glenda...
1: If you're from Canada, you should watch this movie, because it's great.
0: I feel like Canadians, like, have a very distinct national identity...
1: Of being like, hey, look, we're in this.
0: Yeah, we get... He's
1: Canadian, did you know?
0: Yes, we get, like, abnormally excited over, like, (laughs) Canada being, like, acknowledged as a place that exists. Um... (laughs) So, yeah, so June and Glenda have come over to Britain because she's been getting letters from Silva, who is one of the Salford retinue, yeah, entourage. Um, So she comes over to meet Silva, who's living in a old age home. And she goes to him, and he's got one of the seven keys, which is weird because they're all supposed to be kept together. Um, Never mind that that seems to defeat the purpose of having seven different keys to a door, but Whatever. Um, he warns her that, like, skullduggery is afoot, basically. <laughs> um, before, like, I shit you not, a painting with, like, cutout eyes has, like, a little trap door in it and a hand holding a gun comes out and shoots Silva. It's like James Bond. Yeah, That's this great. movie's very much like a 1930s James Bond. Like, it's a mystery thriller, but it's a very pulpy kind of mystery thriller, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, is very much, like, a proto-Bond villain. Dick Martin's sort of a proto-James Bond-like hero. It's very much got that kind of flavor, just without the, like, globe-trotting adventure. It's just all very, you know, English cottages in, in the fog, kind of, but...
1: Still some sexism, though.
0: Yeah. Silva's shot, and I, I just want to point out that, like, every silencer gunshot in this movie sounds like it's coming out of, like, a dart gun. It's the most, like... <laughs> yeah, that's what they think a silencer sounds like. It's so bizarre. So Silva's shot, and June freaks out. So she goes out of the room to like find someone to be like, "Hey, this man's been shot." And she finds the like matron of the old age home, and the matron's like. Are you kidding? Like, this old-age home has no patients. No one's been here for years.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, they go back into the room, and, like, the body's gone, and everything's gone,
0: gone. It's empty. It
1: was all in your head, June. Yeah,
0: you're crazy, because there's, no, we've never had patients here. In fact, no one else <laughs> works here. June's like, well, that's fucked up. So she, <laughs> she goes to the police. Goes to Scotland Yard, uh, and we meet our basically our hero, Dick Martin, who is a Scotland Yard detective who has just this very day resigned. But, you know, June's good-looking, so we're going to take her case anyway. And him and his buddy... Cor- Inspector Seed. Cornelius Seed, who is great. Um, they've taken the case, and they go out to Selford Manor and do an investigation, and there's a lot of, you know, moving pieces here, a lot of running around, and this person getting trapped here, and that person getting caught up in this scheme there, and oh, this person has this key now, and that person has that key now, and yada yada. But basically, the way it all shakes out is when they finally get access to the tomb, it turns out it contains the death certificate for young lord selford who's been dead since he was 10 like since his old man dad died and there's this like like havelock the lawyer his son has been going around pretending to be selford (laughs) and the whole thing was just designed so that all the people in control of the estate could just basically milk the estate for money for ever and they've just been covering up that like this is what happened um they didn't kill Young Lord Selver
1: died of natural causes.
0: Yeah, they just agreed to never tell anyone so that they could yeah. just keep taking money. So once they've sort of discovered this, um, Dick Martin ends up in a climactic duel with Doctor Manetta in the torture chamber. You mean the doctor Min-
1: chamber of horrors.
0: Yes, thank you. That Doctor Manetta keeps because he collects old torture instruments. That fight shakes out with you know the truth coming out and all the answers being revealed. Minetta kills himself. With a poisoned goblet, uh, so no one basically gets arrested because I think all the criminals end up dying over the course of the movie. Uh, at one point or another.
1: No, no uh, they still have the chauffeur and the the chauffeur. Butler.
0: Yeah, the chauffeur who's actually a forger. That's right, and the butler who is mute and looks like if Lurch from the Addams family had like a Liverpool like
1: original Beatles, Beatles haircut. haircut.
0: Yeah, who
1: like he's shown having that in the flashback. Or the original time yeah, period? Yeah, Flashback? yeah, the prologue. The prologue. So he's had this very terrible bowl cut for ten years. Yeah, so they, okay, so they arrested okay, a couple okay, of lackeys, yeah, yeah, but, like,
0: yeah. the Codies die, you know, and Havelock dies, and, like, like everyone else dies. So uh, The kid impersonating... Anyways, so yeah. Minetta dies, and it all gets tied up, and uh, June's gonna get, you know what remains of the estate including all the jewels which are all intact and it's implied that she'll probably you know get together with dick because she's young and attractive and he's young and attractive
1: yeah and glenda and cornelius are going to get together our two comic relief characters are going to get together yeah that's i'm very happy happy about because they were both great surprisingly yeah
0: so that's 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 the plot of the movie there's a lot of ins and outs and running around like any of this type of movie you know has but that's that's the basic of it.
1: And I know we, we kind of already discussed some parts of this movie before explaining the plot, but I think we both agree that this is a very good mystery thriller. Mm-hmm. I, I would recommend you see it.
0: It's not a horror movie. I mean, it's not up on like the level of like what Hitchcock was doing at the same time in terms of a mystery thriller, um, but it is very like fun. It's a fun, enjoyable movie.
1: Yeah. Um, But I wonder if, because I would definitely characterize this as a thriller rather than horror, maybe we should have at least a rehashing or a reminder to listeners about what we are considering the differences between these two genres. That's
0: probably a really good point. Um, We've sort of taken a very narrow view of what gets to go on the list. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of stuff, you know, and it's why we end up having episodes like this, because we really don't know until we see the movie in a lot of cases. So we're just going off of what the general consensus is about oh this is horror and you know then we watch it and it's it's clearly not. not. And yeah, we've defined horror very narrowly and I think that's been very important because you know if you're going to examine the evolution of a genre like looking at every offshoot isn't always going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important to view this movie in light of what you said about Dark Eyes of London which is that when I was reluctant to consider that movie horror, you claimed it to be like an offshoot of horror and that anything that went in that same direction further away from the genre shouldn't be counted. And here we are. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is when you're doing a podcast that's about watching, you know...
1: Every horror movie ever made in chronological order.
0: It helps to weed that down a little bit. At you least th- a little bit. You know, like, y- you can't be going like, oh, well, we'll watch... The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, because, like, there might be a ghost in the Sleepy Hollow part. Like, <laughs> y- we can't be doing that, you know?
1: Yeah, for the record, it's not a ghost, it's the dude dressed up, but anyways. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think, to kind of go back to our very, very first episode, mm-hmm. um, which is like a year and a half ago now, we know it when we see it yes we know horror when we see it it's a feeling that you get as well as a bit of the structure of the film in terms of like are we chasing down someone or are they chasing down us mm-hmm. are they survivors versus heroes mm-hmm.
0: and an emotional intent of the creators of the of the movie
1: yeah and i think that goes down to the writing the cinematography Even, like, what the studio themselves wanted.
0: Yeah, I think that um, you can have... You don't have to have all these pieces. Yeah. But you do need to have, like, more than one of them, you know, to, to really count. So, I mean, you can look at any genre this way, the way that Sarah's describing, between, you know, how it makes you feel when you watch it, how you feel the... What you feel the intent of the movie was based on all of the aspects of its production, what the story structure was...
1: And how well it's constructed. Sure. You know, how well does it actually convey these themes and meanings?
0: Yeah, I think think you can look at this with any genre, but horror and thriller are very close. And so it's very, I think, more important to make these distinctions. Because, I mean, everyone can kind of tell the difference between Bridget Jones' Diary and the Texas Chainsaw (laughs) Massacre. Yes! But, like, the difference between this and you know, the cat in the canary mm-hmm. is, is a lot thinner. So when we look at, for example, the protagonists, that's one of the things we look at. And Sarah, you just mentioned our, our metric of survivor or hero. And the way we define that is horror movie protagonists are survivors of trauma. The horror movie itself is the depiction of the trauma they are surviving, right? Which is the other thing that will distinguish a horror movie from, say, uh, like a revenge movie right? Like, Death Wish isn't a horror movie, because the protagonist has already gone through the trauma, and now it's motivating them to some other action. Um, In the horror movie, the protagonist is, you know, undergoing some sort of trauma, some sort of fear, you know, whether it's a vampire's after me, or, you know, whether it's something else. And by the end of the movie, they have survived that trauma, regardless of how that trauma ended up going away, right? Like in Phantom Carriage, it goes away because, um, David Holm repents his sins. Whereas, you know, in Dracula, it goes away because we staked the Dracula. Guy. Yeah. Um, so there's, but at the end of the day, you're a survivor. Yeah. And how we distinguish that from a hero is a hero seeks out evil in the world, seeks out the problem to solve the problem. Problem didn't come to them. They came to the problem. So, for example... Alien. Right, versus Alien. Versus aliens. Aliens. Ex- Absolutely. That's a perfect example. You know, in one case, Ripley's trapped with this thing on the ship, and it's through no fault of her own. In fact, many efforts on her part to not be trapped with it that she is. Whereas in Aliens, yeah, they go back to fight these things. and kick In a
1: giant gun.
0: In a giant gun, yeah. Additionally... You know, that narrative structure of, you know, who's the active participant? Are we going to the monster or is the monster coming to us?
1: I think the terms protagonist and antagonist might be useful here because protagonist isn't necessarily the main character, it's the person who's actively doing something and yeah. antagonist is stopping them.
0: Yeah, in traditional, that's very true. In traditional literary critique terms, that is a very good point, Sarah. I tend to use protagonist willy-nilly as a term for the main character. But you're right. And Often
1: they're the same, so it yes. makes sense.
0: Yeah, technically speaking, the protagonist is the person who acts. The antagonist is thwarting their action. And then you have the main character, who is the character who is either the viewpoint of the story or the person who the story is revolving around in some way. So in the case of Dracula, for example, I would say that Mina is the main character, Dracula is the protagonist, and Van Helsing is the antagonist. Mm -hmm. But Dracula is a villain, Van Helsing is a hero, Mina is a victim. victim. Yeah, exactly. You know, so in a movie like this, that's why I said, you know, if Dick Martin wasn't around, like if it was just June on her own, the forces um, that were arrayed against her would feel overwhelming enough to give the film a sense of dread or paranoia or conspiracy. You know, the way that, like, the closest this movie really gets to her is that one scene when the matron's like, oh, no, no one's ever been here, right? Because that's that, that's the scene where you're, like, questioning what you know and, you know, what's going on and, you know, how where, like... How powerful are my enemies that they can just rewrite reality like that? But yeah, once Dick Martin's in there, then, like, fuck, he's handsome and has a nice suit and a good haircut and a gun. Like, we're fine, you know? The key thing for me, other than these narrative structural things, because you can get into the weeds with narrative structural things sometimes.
1: Definitely.
0: A key thing for me is what was the emotional intent of the film. So, for me, the difference with horror and thriller here is... A horror movie is designed to make you afraid. You will feel scared. That's the goal, is to make an audience feel fear, to get them to be screaming in their seats. A thriller has a similar goal. It's a similar emotion. We're tickling, you know, a similar nerve. It's, it's activating, you know, adrenaline in both cases. But a thriller is designed to excite you. You know, get you on the edge of your seat, wondering what's gonna happen next. You know, in both cases, you might be yelling at the screen like, get out of there! Like, it's, the oh, God, why? Um, but it's a different feeling. Mm-hmm. You you don't typically have nightmares after watching a thriller if it's done a really good job. You know what I mean? Like Like, you shouldn't watch North by Northwest and then go home and be, like, frightened of things. Whereas if you watch Psycho and go home, and you're reluctant to take a shower, like it's an understandable fear.
1: I've quoted Nanette in the past in how Hannah Gadsby kind of talks about comic structure where there's a setup and a Mm punchline, and horror is, like, relieves that tension with a scream rather than a laugh. Yes. Um, And I think thriller, a thriller also drives itself on a sense of tension.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Um, but it's more of a huzzah rather than a huah.
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's the, the result of the suspense is different. Also the kinds of suspense, but yeah, the, the, the result of the suspense is different because in a horror movie, you know, look out, that thing is creeping up behind you and then it grabs her and pulls her into the darkness. And in a thriller, it's, you know, oh no, he doesn't know that the room he's in has a bomb in it. And then you see the bomb go off, and you go, oh no, what happened to him? And then you see, like, his head poke out from underneath, like, <laughs> the floorboards or whatever, and he's fine because he dived to beneath, like, a rebar support structure at the last moment or whatever the fuck, right?
1: Dope into a fridge to avoid the nuclear hot Exactly, yeah.
0: Um, so it's, it's a different feeling. Yeah. Um, and there's an intent there, and I think that a thriller doesn't intend to scare you, and I don't think this movie intends to scare
1: No. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about, either inspired by this movie or about this movie?
0: Not particularly. Um, If this was a different podcast, I could go on for longer about how proto-James Bond this feels to me, like how much I would be so interested in tracking down did Ian Fleming read Edgar Wallace novels? I'm almost oh, sure that he so did. So
1: prolific he must have.
0: I mean Fleming has the same background as Wallace, right? Because Wallace was a journalist.
1: Well he he became a journalist after joining the press corps. Yeah.
0: But like Fleming became a journalist after being a fucking secret agent, right? So Oh,
1: I I thought he was a journalist first. Uh
0: it's this isn't an Ian Fleming podcast. <laughs> um I'm trying to say that they were journalists before they became Thriller writers. Yes. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's the important point that I have here about, like, similarities I would be so fascinated to, like, track down. I mean, at the time this movie came out, Fleming's, like, in the Royal Navy, like, figuring out crazy, like, secret agent plans. So, you know. So no one knows what he was up to. Sure. Uh, But yeah, uh, other than just pointing that out, that, like, that was what hit me about this movie... Yeah, I don't really have anything additional to say.
1: Okay. Then what I'll say is that June is really great. Um, There's obviously sexism in this movie. It's from
0: 1940.
1: Yeah, um, but I think it does a a fairly good job.
0: It was really nice and refreshing that, like, when she went to the police, like, because They, like, believed her. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, the first thing that happens is the matron doesn't believe her, right? And it Well, would the be... matron's the chick. I know, I know. I'm just pointing out that, like, it, the natural thing to do next in a movie to array the forces of evil against her would be to have the cops not believe her either. And yeah. instead she goes, and they're like, oh, someone was murdered? Sweet, we'll get right on that. And that was well, just...
1: Not sweet, but sh- we'll just get
0: right on that. <laughs> yeah, it was just nice to see.
1: Yeah, I think there should just be some shout out, some hat tip whatever to the production team of this film. The sets look really great. Um there's some model work which is really like done fairly well. Um and the lighting was very yeah. interesting. It had some neat things with like spotlights and uh flashlights.
0: Yeah, it was a well-made movie.
1: Yeah. So, you know, see this movie, but um it's not going to be ranked on the list it will be down in the not applicable list
0: yeah like the third or fourth movie from 1940 to like get into that section of the list so I think I'm going to be a bit more prejudiced about how I pre-screen our movies uh going forward for a little bit
1: stringent stringent prejudiced makes it sound negative
0: yeah there's definitely a negative connotation there that's for sure
1: yeah All right, well, um, if you would like to check out some horror movies that are are on the list, because it is October, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com and check out the list there. Number one is still Jekyll and Hyde from 1932. Yep. And bottom of the list is some stuff you would probably just want to skip anyways. So check out the list (laughs) if you have any issues or any problems with how we've ranked things or how we're coming up with this delineation between horror and thriller, you can drop us a line. We have an ask box on Tumblr, or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or, you know, chat with us on Twitter. Um, Nothing like Twitter to get really deep into a discussion and hash out the intricacies of genres. Yeah,
0: it's a a really subtle and nuanced platform uh, with a lot of good discussion and debate, on it. That is a truth.
1: And that's at underscore Scream Scene.
0: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can leave us a rating or a review on the platforms that allow you to do that, and that would be really great and helpful for us because those affect metrics and algorithms that allow other people to see the show more easily.
1: And hear the show more easily.
0: Oh, yeah. People don't tend to... Well, when I say see the show, I mean, like, see it on the charts. Yeah. You know, on their screens. Yeah. Um, another way you can help out the show is just by letting a friend know about us. It's October, folks. It's spooky times. It's the witching season. It's...
1: The season of the witch! Uh,
0: yes. I'm, that's not very different from the last one I said.
1: Yeah, but it's a more popular phrase. So, we have some big plans for Patreon people, let me just say.
0: So, um, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. But uh, at the $5 and $10 levels, there's access to bonus audio, um, horror writings that uh, I wrote, um, and yeah, there's going to be some fun, cool bonus stuff coming through October for uh, even just the $1 level. Uh, it's going to be basically available to all the patrons of the night. Um, but, you know, if you can't afford uh, even the dollar for all this cool stuff, or if you just want to support for a month and then back out once you got the extra October stuff, like, we get that. That's fine. The best way you can really help the show during this haunted month is by letting a friend know about us, telling everyone you know about us, saying, hey, this is the best horror movie podcast around, better than all those others. Uh, You should definitely listen.
1: (laughs) I'm planning on making some spooky, scary music uh, that is available for patrons of any level. Um, And like Ben said, we take no offense if you join for a month and then pop out. I completely understand if funds run short. Um, You know, this is the best time of the year, as Bing Crosby sings.
0: Not about this time of the year, but...
1: (laughs) So, um, we're celebrating Dan at Patreon.com slash Scream Scene
0: Podcast.
1: What are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Next week, Sarah, we are watching The Devil Bat. Starring... Bella Lugosi. Oh? Yeah, it's a PRC movie from the...
1: North Korea?
0: Producers Releasing Corporation.
1: Oh, why did I say North Korea? It's fucking China. <laughs> People's Republic of China.
0: And I, I swear to you, Sarah, that The Devil Bat is horror.
1: Okay. I cannot... Vouch for its quality. Correct. I mean, it, it quite possibly just... Be a ripoff of Dracula, given that Bella Lugosi and it's called the Devil Bat.
0: Yeah, but uh, I can pr- also promise you that it's not. It's significantly weirder than that.
1: Oh, weird. I
0: yeah, like it. it's uh, Bella Lugosi is a mad scientist. Excellent. He turns into a devil bat. Maybe. And fights Batman. No. We will
1: see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.